it's always a great honor and a privilege to preach the word of God, to stand before a company of people who are just like you, mere mortals, and to seek to get hold of and uh, express and appreciate something that comes out of this unique book. But having done it many times, it never gets any easier. And as I look upon your smiling faces, I think of how I felt today. And then I've been arguing with myself and talking with myself and saying, Thou, it is not all about you. Okay? The preacher, it's not about the preacher. It's about all of us, including God in heaven. Now, one of the outstanding men in the New Testament was the Apostle Paul. His gospel work in the founding and the expansion of Christianity was of enormous significance. So much so that two years ago, many years ago, two well-known Englishmen, well-known in their day, a man named Gilbert West and another chap called Lord Littleton, they wanted to destroy the Christian gospel. And they rightly worked out they must disprove the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, explain away the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. The two men agreed Gilbert West would study the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and Lord Littleton attacked the con conversion of the Apostle Paul. They would study for a year, go to the best libraries in Europe, they parted and agreed to meet in 12 months' time. After the year, they did meet. And when they compared notes, they were both surprised to find out their research had led to their conversions. Both of them had become Christians. Both of them had set out to destroy the gospel, and both of them had been converted by its power when they looked into its message. Now, of course, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the very heart of the gospel. But in the New Testament, when Saul of Tarsus was converted, he was told he would spread the message 
further afield, and he was appointed the apostle to the Gentiles, to the world at large. And when we come to this book of Romans, Paul sets down before us some of the essential elements of his message that he preached in the world of his day, in the towns, in the villages, to kings, to governors, to, to religious leaders, to students of all kinds, and to ordinary people. The apostle to the Gentiles wrote this book, and therefore it is important for us today as well. What he does really, he picks up something that his Lord, our Lord Jesus, had said many, well, a number of years earlier. Jesus had said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now at that point, People all around the Lord Jesus saw their main priority was it in this world, in the things of this life. The crowd were mostly concerned about food and clothing and housing, the necessities of life. And Jesus said in that context, the necessities of life buzzing, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is the all-important item part priority of living in this world. Of all the things that matter to humanity, ordinary materialism, some special way of thinking and living, finding the meaning to life, personal happiness, we could go on and on, because thinkers and philosophers have been arguing about these things for years. Jesus puts that all to one side. There may be some points in it, something, some values in some of the things they write and they discuss. There may be, there will be, there are. But Jesus, as it were, puts it all to one side and he says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The time came when Christians were, were struggling with one another. They were divided over what food to eat. Food in the marketplace had come through, much of it anyway, had come through a sort of a, uh, an idolatrous process, blessings from idols on the meats and, and all that sort of thing. And some Christians said, you can't eat food that's been there. Other Christians said, oh, forget about it. Idols are nothing. Give thanks to God and enjoy it. And so there was this hot debate. Should they eat the food, this meat, that's come from the marketplace, with this background. 
And Paul writes to them in this very book in chapter 14. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, using that model, there are all kinds of social issues being debated and discussed all over the globe. Gender, race, political correctness, etc., etc. Some of it bound to be right and needs to be looked at and needs to be considered. I'm not, I'm not commenting on that. But from the Bible's point of view, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Jesus said. In all these debates we read and hear about, near and far, how many are concerned about God's righteousness. In this area of God's righteousness... Jesus carried over from the Old Testament right into his preaching and into his ministry a very important part of the Old Testament. Bible students have seen in the Old Testament a number of titles for God. The most well-known one is Jehovah Jireh. Maybe the Lord will provide or the Lord will be seen. But these Jehovah titles bring out what God is, what God was to the Old Testament people. And there was one title there, Jehovah or Yahweh said, can you? And that means the Lord, our righteousness. A massive understanding. God himself was their righteousness. And that message of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, is now picked up by this great apostle, and he brings out and he explains and he shows something of what this righteousness is. It's to do with the, what God is like. God is not a man. God is God in his own identity. But in God's own identity, he is a living being. He has a character. He has a personal life. He is the one who has various qualities. And one of them is righteousness. God makes no mistakes. Never does anything wrong. All the God who is good does and did was right and is right. We go right back to Genesis in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth. And the culmination 
of all that creation was there, God looked and saw that it was good, very good. And then if the Bible focuses on Adam and Eve, this man and woman, and they were made in God's likeness. This living, eternal being, God, they were made to, to be in some way like him. And we find in the Bible that they, they knew God. Animals, birds, trees, flowers, fish. They did not connect with God. They did not think of God. They did not know God. Mountains, trees, and hills, they have their place Nature is a wonderful, wonderful thing. That immense universe out there, those things that are happening which are just mind-boggling. Yet God made Adam and Eve to know him and to be with him and to express the character of God. And this is the all-important principle they were made to express God's righteousness, to live in cooperation, to do what God wanted, to please God, to be happy with God. There was a mutual friendship between Adam and Eve and the God who made them. They knew where they belonged. That was their life. That is until that awful moment when Satan tempted them and they, they then brought about that serious, momentous human failure. Adam and Eve did what Satan wanted and turned away from what God wanted. Adam and Eve put Satan first. And in doing that, they pleased themselves. And the consequences of our first parents has affected humanity ever since. Just remind ourselves the intention of Adam and Eve was they were to know God, they were to live in fellowship with God, they were to come up to God's bearing and being, think like him, please him, love him, serve him, know him, know each other in that fellowship together. And then they distanced themselves from God. That image, that likeness of God, which was originally there, was marred, was broken. And they fell away from that fellowship. Later on in chapter 3, Paul looks over humanity, quoting from the Old Testament, he says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. And I say to, to God, before this word, I say to God, Lord, that includes me. There is none righteous, no, not one, and I'm in that group. 
Now, if the Bible left that there, just like that, and told us how this messy world we're in was, you know, started and came about through that disobedience, going in the way of Satan, obeying and following Satan before God, well, that would be enough. We now know. But the fact is, we are no better than Adam and Eve. Even when we hear of the importance of doing the right thing and what the right things are, we hear of the Ten Commandments God gave, which can be summed up in just two sections. The first section says, love God. The second section says, love others. And any honest to goodness objective person would say I have not loved God with all my heart and I do not love my neighbor as myself and that means I and if you agree with it you are unrighteous you might say well I don't really agree with it in God's standard, you're unrighteous, okay? Even if you don't believe him or believe it, that doesn't alter what God's done and what God's said. We are not right with God. And that's why Jesus said, seek first. More than food and clothing and housing, seek first. This is what you've got to be after. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so Paul begins in chapter, chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, the good news about Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For ev to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So how do we get this righteousness? It's through the gospel of Christ. It is a matter of belief. It is a matter of faith. It is a matter of depending your soul on Jesus. A young child asked Jesus to love them, to be their friend. And as that child grows older with that consciousness of the love of knowing Jesus, they learn that sometimes they do things wrong and that child will say, I'm sorry, Lord they still know Jesus loves them. And then they get to adult years, and then they get to their 60s and their 70s. Nobody's 70 here, are you? They, they, they get to the older years, little ones converted in mother's arms, but they have believed in Jesus through the years. Nothing dramatic like Saul of Tarsus, but they've believed in Jesus as the Savior, from faith 
at the beginning, true faith at the last. All from then on to the end, it's faith, faith, faith in Jesus, trusting in him, depending upon him. The Lord Jesus, we have to see, Paul brings it out very clearly, we need to see Jesus on the cross. We need to see him as the Redeemer. A newly converted artist, a man named Sternberg. He did two paintings of the crucifixion of Christ. One he gave to his local church and he portrayed the agony in the face of Christ. The other one he gave to his native city of Dusseldorf and it was hung in the public gallery. And in that second one, the expression he portrayed of Christ was of, as he put it himself, unutterable love, infinite compassion, willing sacrifice on the cross. Sometime later, a wealthy aristocrat, a count, Zinzendorf was on a journey. He stopped for a while at Dusseldorf went into the public gallery and he saw the painting and Stenberg had put on the frame at the bottom of the at the bottom all this I did for thee what have you done for me and there's this wealthy intelligent very influential, leading figure in his country. And those words grabbed hold of him inside. He, he couldn't leave the painting. He was looking at the words. All this I did for thee. What have you done for me? And there and then, he became a new man. through his life, his wealth, his fame at the foot of the one who he realized had died for him. So in this whole matter of righteousness, dealing with our unrighteousness, we need to see Jesus on the cross. We go back to the man who died on the cross near Jesus. Next to Christ. He admitted he was guilty. He deserved all he was getting. And the dying man called on Jesus. Remember me, Lord. And Jesus replied, today, you will be with me in paradise. I've thought a lot about this while I've been preparing this. How to make the cross more relevant. We've sung some lovely, lovely words. When I survey the wondrous cross. Oh, that first hymn as well. We can just gloss over them sadly. 
Paul was so clear when he spoke about the power of the cross of Christ when he wrote a letter to the Galatian churches. He recalls the vivid experience they'd had, they'd shared together. It was as though the cross of Christ was placarded before them. It was just so big. It was so important. It couldn't be forgotten. It couldn't be sidelined. It was placarded. It was there. How we need to look at the reality of Jesus dying on the cross and believe he was our sin bearer. Imagine it. Imagine, imagine, imagine you're there at Calvary. He's there. You could say to him, what are you doing there? Hounded by those who hate you, bleeding from head to foot, pouring out your soul unto death, not miraculously coming down. How can God forsake you? Look at the cross. Ask questions about that cross. Don't just think about the pain and the ugliness of human treatment. Why was Jesus there? Well, the Spirit of God tells us in the Bible. It says, God delivered him up to the cross. God brought the curse of judgment on him. It gets even more profound. For when Jesus was speaking to people on one occasion, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This I have received from my Father. Why was Jesus on the cross? The Spirit of the Lord reminds us when fearless John the Baptist said, Jesus coming towards him, behold, look, 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 look with all your heart, look with the depths of your being, Behold, the man, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Remember those lovely words. How we Christians enjoy them. For God so loved the world. He gave his only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. One of the great apostles, Peter, describes someone who's had faith, who believes, who's depending upon Jesus and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sin. Peter put it this way, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. On that cross, 
was the most staggering, mind-blowing transaction taking place. God was setting in place a long-planned scheme to save the unrighteous. Here is the groundwork to secure a right and proper way of forgiving the guilty sinner. Father and Son, God and Jesus, were working together to bring about a righteousness that we don't have, that the unrighteous cannot get on their own. Now, I understand the British crown jewels are simply priceless. There was a diamond found the other week so big, it's just staggering in its value. Well, I'm just saying this just now to you, my dear friends. There is no billionaire's business. There are no international contracts. No financial arrangements throughout all history. How old, how young, nothing anywhere to compare with what was happening when Jesus died on that cross. That was of infinite value. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit we're recreating a whole new world and order. And to be part of it, it means to believe. And those who believe have this assurance. Therefore, being justified, declared righteous by God, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I found this week a comment of a Scots Bible teacher named F.F. F. Bruce that God was the supreme judge of the world that the day would come when he would pronounce final judgment on all mankind. Paul preached God's gospel which said that thanks to the work of Christ, the verdict of that day could, by anticipation, be known and accepted at the present time. That those who are right with God can have the assurance of acquittal in his court here. And now, here, to know that you are cleared, everything's, you're acquitted of it all. You're righteous in and through Christ. One of my favorite, if not my all-time favorite verse of him, no condemnation, now I dread. If I had a singing voice, I'd sing it to you. They used to do that, you know. Don't do it these days. Don't do it, Val. 
but the words are lovely. No condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Hey, what are you going to do with the crown you get, believer? You're going to put it at his feet, hey? Yeah. Because he's worthy. He makes all the difference. You've now become a follower of Jesus. His character, his personality, his being, his works, his ways. Jesus matters to you now. You want to follow him and be like him and be one with him. It's not a problem to believe the Bible anymore. You want to know Jesus better because he's loved you so much. You want to honor God's word because it's so rich in what it tells us. There's an American pastor, unlike me, he was a a hunting type and he was out in one of the woods near where he lived in a forest, it says. And he came across a dog with one leg caught in a steel trap. The poor creature was moaning in pain with every attempt to pull its leg free. The man said, I must help him. And as he reached down to pull the lever to release the trap and swing it open, the dog snarled and went to bite him. He went, he went well. He wanted to help him, but the dog obviously snapped at him. What could he do? He wasn't going to leave it. He went and got a, a stiff branch with a fork in. He held it round the dog's neck, held its head to the ground, no doubt roaring away. And then he pushed the lever, the trap flew open, and the dog was free and it ran away. And he ran the other way. He walked the other way on his way, happy. He'd been going walking for 10 minutes and being followed. <laughs> you know it was, don't you? It was the dog. It was coming up to him. He says that when the dog came up, well, it slowly, cautiously approached me and lay at my feet. I leaned over and patted his head and he licked my hand. I again began walking and the dog continued to follow me, followed me all the way home. I treated his wound and gave him water and food. The dog has lived with me ever since and he is still following me no matter where I go. He loves to sit in my lap and lick my hand, the same hand he once tried to bite when it sought to set him free from that trap. I was once, that poor dog says this man, I was caught in a trap that was stronger than steel. I was caught in the trap of sin and self. Life was painful and filled with despair. 
the blessed Saviour came by and knelt to help me. But I pushed him away in fear and anger. He, however, was de determined to loose me from my bondage. He pinned me to the ground. Oh, has your conscience ever pinned you to the ground? Well, I'll tell you this. Mine has. And I thank God for a prick conscience. Because it was God that was dealing with it. I know this isn't favorable these days. You shouldn't have a conscience. Never feel guilty. You're always right. Uh, and all that. And, and, oh. When we're wrong with God, we're wrong with God. And no getting away from it. No matter how we dress it up. No matter how we argue around it. This man... He pinned me to the ground, unshackled the trap that held me and set me free. I lay at his feet and worshipped him. Ever since, I have willingly followed him wherever he has led me. I delight to sit in his presence and express the love that I have for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, we've just done it, haven't we? In the bread and in the cup. We've just expressed with delight the love for him. Now then, let's follow him in righteousness. <laughs>